You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky, episode 23. I'm Jennifer, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. Hello. And Dr. John Nielsen Gammon, who is the Texas State Climatologist. So uh, we're going to be obviously talking about climate today, and um, he specializes in extreme weather. We'll be talking a lot about that. Um, Dr. Nielsen Gammon grew up in Northern California and went to school at MIT, received a PhD in 1990, and a year later joined the faculty at Texas A&M, where he's now Regents Professor of Atmospheric Sciences. He was designated Texas State Climatologist by then-Governor George W. Bush in 2000, and his research started out in weather but expanded to climate and is now a mashup of the two, since he spends a lot of his time working on climate change effects on extreme weather. So he relies on observations, statistical analysis, and computer simulations, all working towards physical understanding. Sounds like you're a busy man. So, so <laughs> can you, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, talk about, you know, kind of what how the work that you do maybe applies to their lives and, and residents of the state. And I guess just kind of expand on what it is that the, the state climatologist does. Yeah, it's, there's no uh, real fixed job description per se. Um, each, just about every state in the country has a state climatologist. It used to be um, a, a, someone in the weather service that was overseeing the collection of climate data. And then back in 1973, the weather service decided that, climate really wasn't its thing and so they got out of the climate services business and uh, a lot of states picked up the slack um state climate are mostly like land-grant institutions or they're either atmospheric scientists or geographers um and what we do varies quite a bit um i mainly focus on doing applied climate research which is research on stuff that actually affects people and can help with uh decision-making or avoiding climate hazards. I do a lot of press interviews. Uh, we released our first set of climate projections last month. I'm working on projects for monitoring drought and assessing changes in frequency of extreme rainfall, um, in addition to being a faculty member at Texas A&M. Yeah, I was going to ask, are you, are you also teaching? Because it sounds like that's a full-time job in itself. Yeah, we're mostly a research department, so our normal teaching load is one course a semester. Um, and I do that two courses in one semester and zero in the other, so I can oh, okay. focus on outreach during the other semester. And I also have about six graduate students that I'm supervising and mentoring as well. Oh, okay. So very busy man, and um, you've been doing this a while, so you know your stuff, you know Texas weather, and... Um, I know that you've seen a lot of things change. Um, can, can you kind of, uh, for the benefit of folks who maybe aren't as, as familiar or don't quite understand, explain um, what is climate change and how does it differ from weather? Because they are two distinct things, but I think a lot of times people um, think they're interchangeable. Well, to some extent they are. The, my simple definition of climate is it's the statistics of the weather. So if you have a day... Um, with a with a high temperature of 105, that's weather. If if uh, if 105 actually set the record for the day, then that's climate as well. 
Um, we think of climate as often being just the average conditions, but it actually represents the average conditions and the extremes and basically the whole range of possibilities. So um, you can't really, you know, a single weather observation doesn't tell you anything about the climate unless you put it in the context of the, the weather conditions that have happened over a period of, of several decades. Um, and, you know, until relatively recently, scientifically, we treated the climate as something where the, the more records we get, the more precisely we know what the climate is. But then um, scientists realized that climate was changing and changing at, at a pace which was um, rather, rather, uh, unusual to say the least compared to past climate changes. And so when we talk about climate change these days, we're really talking about the change that's going on right now associated with the warming of global temperatures and all the things that go along with that. Yeah. So someone saying, you know, it's cold. Um, it was it was cold this winter or, or it snowed um, there. Obviously, climate change isn't real. That's where you draw the distinction of, no, that was weather. Um, it was cold in the winter because it's winter, but the average temperature, the average, you know, weather patterns are shifting year to year, even if it's a little bit at a time, kind of. Yeah, if you, if you have, if you're talking about climate change and you're looking for trends in the in the weather, and and of course scientifically you're looking at what's causing those trends. Um, there's not much variation from year to year in the average global temperature. It, uh, I think. Uh, this uh, this year's temperature was maybe something like uh, uh, five hundredths of a degree different from the previous year's global temperature, something like that. But as you get down to smaller and smaller scales, the variability goes up tremendously. So that if you took at the average conditions where you're living last year, that could be different by by two or three degrees compared to what happened the previous year, and it's almost just as likely to be up than down. So you have to look at a longer period of time to actually tell whether there's a trend going on. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you mentioned um, the global temperature and, and we hear a lot about this uh, two degrees. We're, we're two degrees away from basically the point of no return. Um, can you speak to that? I guess what is the significance of that You know, shift, whether it's two degrees or you think it's a different you know, variation, um, what will that signify or what will that kind of trigger if we get to that point? Yeah, well, the way I think about it, uh, two degrees was was specified as a target, basically, by the international community um, because, basically, they needed a target. You can't, you can't achieve a goal for limiting climate change unless you specify what that goal is. And two degrees um, makes sense for a lot of reasons. It's probably about as hot as it got um, during the last interglacial period before we had the most recent ice age. So it's not something that the planet hasn't uh, experienced uh, fairly recently, recently being uh, 120,000 years ago. Scientifically. Uh, but no matter what threshold you pick, uh, the impacts, um, uh, in, in terms of the impacts to society, impacts to the natural environment and all of that, are going to be smaller if you stay below that level than, than if you exceed it. Mm -hmm. um, a few years back, it, 
people started thinking that, well, maybe two degrees actually gives us impacts that we really don't want. We want to avoid it. And so they, the, the international community with the Paris Accord said, well, okay, we're going to, we're going to keep things under two degrees, but we're going to really try hard to keep it under one and a half degrees. And, uh, then that caused, uh, the, the, uh, as part of that, they turned to the scientists and said, you know, we'd really like to keep it under one and a half degrees. So what difference would that make? And how can we go about doing that? And the difference it makes is, well, it basically everything has, has uh, less harmful effects. There's smaller impacts from climate change. And as far as how you do it, uh, the answer was, uh, it's it's probably not going to happen. It's really difficult <laughs> to keep things under one and a half degrees. Um, so, but, you know, don't be dismayed by our likely failure to reach that target because every little bit we do to reduce climate change reduces the impacts and the impacts go up exponentially as temperatures go up. So holding temperatures down a little bit has a really big beneficial impact. Holding down a bit more, helps a lot holding down a bit more helps even even more but not so big a change that last bit from two degrees to one and a half degrees is the least consequential half degree change in that whole scale interesting and just just for the benefit of our listeners um we're, when we're talking degrees we're talking in celsius uh not fahrenheit correct yeah, we're talking so that's why this and okay. we're talking about global average temperatures. So the average change in degrees Fahrenheit on land where people live is going to be something like uh, two to two and a half times the global Celsius temperature change. Right. Yeah. So just, one and a half just degrees Celsius I... is, is, is around uh, three or four degrees Fahrenheit where people live in in the. Uh, in like North America and Europe. Yeah, I, I know a lot of times people hear two degrees, and if you're in the Fahrenheit mindset, you think, oh, that's not much, but we have to remember Celsius jumps a little bit more than the Fahrenheit. So. <laughs> yeah, um, since it starts making, making seeming like a lot bigger changes, we talk about the number of days where we um, exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime. That's that's a pretty, you know, significant threshold. People start thinking, "Damn, it's really hot when it's 100 degrees." Um, and basically, every um, every degree temperatures warm during the summertime, uh, a typical place in Texas will have about twice as many days over 100 degrees as it used to. So we're actually talking about something on the order of a quadrupling of 100 degree days. Yeah. Uh, even if global temperatures um, stay stay at uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius. Chris is from Canada, and she just is bottled no. by the thought of that much no. heat. If that, it, uh, I went down, I visited you guys in August, uh, so almost three years ago, and it was, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, it was 38 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, that's about just, 90 so no thank you so if it gets if you're quadrupling the amount i'm never coming down i'm just i'm not i'm sorry <laughs> i'm not coming you're gonna have to come up with me conversely i visited chris in august yes. of last year and it was delightful it was up wonderful. there yeah, and they were complaining good. about the heat and i was oh. like oh this is kind of nice <laughs> 80 yeah, something I mean, degrees yeah uh, if you try visiting in the winter time you get a completely different experience of course yeah 
and, I'll be the one and our extreme cold temperatures are getting warmer faster than our extreme hot temperatures, mm-hmm. um, which has its own consequences for the natural environment. It lengthens the growing season and so forth. Um, what I tell people as far as their actual experience of climate change is we'll know that climate change is a big deal in people's daily lives when people stop moving from the northern United States to the southern United States when they retire and instead move in the other direction. Yeah. So not seeing that. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, yeah, you, you're kind of touching on some things that you guys talked about in a study you recently completed, um, assessment of historic and future trends of extreme weather in Texas, 1900 to 2036. So do you want to talk a little bit about that study? Um, is that the most recent publication your office has put out? Yeah, sure. It's actually our only, our, our first and only official climate projections. Okay. There's been a couple of uh, attempts at sort of a comprehensive assessment of climate change for Texas that uh, were organized by um, uh, Jurgen Schmatt, Jerry North, and, and uh, uh, Judy Clarkson. Um, the the second, second book on that was released in 2010 or thereabouts, and I wrote one of the chapters covering the observations. Um, and along came this organization called Texas 2036, which is basically trying to um, get Texas to focus on long-term planning um, with the time horizon being the year 2036 being the bicentennial of Texas's independence. We're, we're of course, uh, privileged to be uh, a state that was actually independent at one time. And so they wanted to know what's going to happen to extreme weather in the next uh, couple decades. But they wanted to know about it from an observed perspective because a lot of people uh, in Texas don't really trust the whole climate change thing. They don't trust climate models and so forth. So what I said about doing was uh, getting the, the observations together and saying, okay, here's what the trends are in the observations. And, you know, two decades from now, there's not going to be much of a change in the super tanker that's that's climate. We're going to continue warming no matter what we do to carbon dioxide emissions over the, over just a couple decades. So you can pretty well extrapolate trends and say what's going to be happening over the next couple decades. Um, I really only use climate models to figure out what time horizon for the trends to focus on. Like over the past 40 years, Texas temperature has been warming at slightly faster rate than global temperatures, and that is expected to continue according to climate models. So I use that as a starting point. And what I found interesting was you mentioned that uh, the the warmer seasons aren't necessarily getting warmer on average, but the colder seasons are. And I've definitely noticed that, you know, living in Texas for 20 years. But uh, I also feel like every summer is just hotter and hotter. I don't know if that's just a product of, like you said, it's there's more over 100 days um, or it's just the heat is just so oppressive that they all seem to, it just seems to get worse and worse. Um, but that's an interesting trend that, that only one seems to be shifting at this point. Yeah, that's true for the extremes. If you just look at, say, average temperatures, um, it's pretty much uh, gone up by, um, one and a half or two degrees Fahrenheit compared to the 20th century average uh, in summer and winter. Um, the extremes are doing a little bit different thing because like in the wintertime, our super cold weather comes from, uh, no offense from Canada, 
and uh, the the Arctic is warming at a rate faster than the rest of the planet, and so we're basically losing that source of extreme cold air. So when we get a super blast of uh, cold air from the north, it's not as cold as it used to be. Um, our warm summer temperatures and humidity, which you're familiar with, comes from from the tropical oceans. Tropical oceans are warming fairly slowly, but the fact that you get the higher temperatures and higher humidity at the same time makes it feel like a pretty big temperature change because it does become uncomfortable pretty quickly. Okay, so I'm not crazy completely. <laughs> not in this respect, anyway. No. <laughs> Thank you for that validation. Um, Chris, did you have anything you want to jump in with? <clears throat> I was interested to, uh, when you said that people in Texas don't really believe <laughs> the climate change stuff. I mean, we're not uh, um, free of that up here either. But why do you think that is specific well, to Texas? Um, <clears throat> of course, climate change has been politicized quite a bit and so so it becomes sort of an identity politics issue and uh, texas is 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 predominantly republican state so that's a large part of it um, another part of it is texas's economy is founded um, for the past hundred years basically on on oil and gas as a large component of that and so there's a lot of um recognition of the value of oil and gas development in the economy of Texas and consequently a negative view on things that would harm that aspect of the economy. I think those two factors um, combined uh, tend to um, do that, although surveys of the general public tend to uh, have Texas's point of view on climate change be similar to what it is uh, nationally, but as you get toward the, you know, the political leaders, things become a lot more polarized. Is that frustrating for you as a scientist? Uh, it, it is frustrating that uh, it's, it's difficult for people in state agencies to actually use the words climate change because that can, that can it's get... It's like people... a dirty word in some circles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, when, if, with our um, uh, update for disaster management plans that we sent to FEMA, um, last year, um, rather than talking about climate change, we talked about future weather, which was perfectly acceptable to consider. Okay. And I think, I think really, um, the, there's a difference between what, what politicians have to say in public and, and what they believe in, in private. I think that people are a lot closer together once they get down to the nitty gritty of it and close the doors and have frank discussions. Yeah, it's also interesting. Um, I live near Fort Hood and, uh, you know, Fort Hood embraced a few years ago. Um, of course, this was under a different administration, but they embraced um, going zero energy, zero waste based largely on a study done by the DOD that found that climate change is a threat multiplier and it directly affects their ability to do their job and defend the country. Um, so they're taking it pretty seriously. And to that end, they've invested in, you know, uh, solar and wind and and shifting their entire infrastructure to that one to to go cleaner, but also to um, get off the, on their own grid. Um, so so there are certain aspects of the government, like you said, that are that seem to be taking this seriously and taking steps. And then there's kind of a disconnect in other areas. And I don't know why this is politicized. I really don't understand. It's 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 
science and it's um, health and it, it makes economical sense. It's just, it's, it boggles my mind. And I'm sure you've, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of urban, urban rural divide and political issues in Texas and, and climate change as well. You know, Houston is Houston, Austin, El Paso, uh, San Antonio have all developed climate change action plans. Um, and, but as you get toward more rural communities, there's a greater value for independence. And so things that require collective action like climate change um, don't don't get through the doors easily. That's a good point. Yeah. Although, you know, Texas is uh, very well suited for both solar and wind power because it's very windy and very sunny. <laughs> Not here, we, so. we generate a lot. We, you know, we, we generate more wind power here than any other state. So yeah. we have taken advantage of that. You know, yeah. It wasn't sold as a climate change action, but as a economic opportunity. Yeah. Do you um? So do you do you foresee uh? I guess folks embracing more of the economic benefits of this, both in Texas and just states or even nationwide. Um. In the future, do you see that being more of a, um, I guess, a push for folks than the, you know, the other aspects, the, the environmental stuff and the health and the other things that can come out of climate change? Or yeah, I think I think the economics is key. Um, I'm I'm fairly pessimistic about uh, uh, people willingly um, sacrificing a portion of their income to help the global climate do a lot better in 50 years. That's a really hard sell uh, once, once it comes down to real money. But with, once we get the technology to the point where it's, it's easier and cheaper to use energy sources that don't emit carbon dioxide and so forth, or you know, change the economics of it so that carbon dioxide emissions aren't an externality, as the economists call it, um, then people don't have to do the right thing because it's the right thing. They do the right thing because they're always, you know, trying to make their dollars go farther. Yeah. I guess that's something I, I always struggle with. It's like, I just want people to do it because it's the right thing. And then I have to realize sometimes you've got to have other, uh, you know, motivators. And luckily the economics is on our side too. So that helps. <laughs> Yeah, it's getting there. You know, the problem problem with climate change is the problem is that it's it's not it's requires broad action across all of society. It's it's something where the benefits are way down the road for the most part. It's something where people can't really see it happening. And um, you know, pe people tend to agree that climate change is a big issue, but if you try to rank it compared to other issues, it's it's there are always going to be several things that are higher on the list obviously COVID-19 is is pretty darn high in everybody's list right now right. um yeah. to see how 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 that perception of COVID-19 has you know ha has evolved compared to how perception of climate change has evolved over a much longer time humans are inherently short-sighted we have a hard time grasping that far into the future that's true yeah yeah, Chris and I were talking a little before the show about how uh, this self-quarantine and just complete lifestyle shift has kind of forced us to um, not do a lot of the things we were doing before to be more sustainable. I mean, you know, 
whether it's products you can find in the store or you can't bring your own containers or like here the recycle center shut down. So I'm hoarding recycling right now. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the immediate actions of what you can do are definitely affected by real world events. And yeah. Yeah. And, and like climate change, uh, the COVID-19 is having impacts Far beyond what you'd imagine, we're still understanding what, what goes on with it. Like, you know, um, people aren't driving much, so air pollution is way down. And so um, people aren't going to experience as many deaths from from air pollution or from car accidents. Um, this is not the way you want to lower those, but it has that <laughs> impact. Um, I, I saw a study recently uh, looking at why car accidents and or fatalities on the road declined dramatically um, a few years ago nationally. And it turned out to be because of the recession, young people weren't driving as much. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you um, the, you know, some of the environmental impacts of this um, pandemic. I mean, obviously it's, it's not the right reason, like you said to, or the, the right uh, thing that we wanted to be causing it, but we are hearing, you know, there's a lot of uh, there, there's less greenhouse gases in the air. There's places where animals are returning and things are kind of starting to flourish. Nature's kind of reclaiming a lot of places, um, which is an interesting phenomena. But obviously, it's not going to last. Um, I, I just am curious as to your take on all that or how, you know, significant you think that could be in, in maybe changing people's views in the future as to getting serious about some of this stuff. Yeah, I think it'll be, you know, it's, it's it's interesting to see how this all plays out with respect to people's views of of, of different roles in society. Um, uh, you know, people are people are um, saying, "Oh, the federal government needs to do more; should have done more." Um, a lot of a lot of that is true from my perspective, but in the meantime, there's no single obvious correct course of action for policy so we see different states doing different things different countries doing different things and it all involves this this challenging trade-off between what um you know how how much you reduce uh the growth of of COVID-19 and how much you suppress the strain on hospitals versus how much you reduce the uh growth and unemployment rate um, reduce the expansion of, of hunger in society, um, and and nobody knows really how to pull off that balance. We don't even have the hard data to figure out how to do that. Yet people are thinking, well, it's obvious we need to do this, we need to do that. Um, you know, compared to that, the the science of climate change is way advanced. We've had economists, scientists working on this for years. We have very concrete ideas of what needs to be done, and I think. Once we get out of the, the pandemic mode, people realize we had to make a lot of decisions on the seat of our pants during COVID-19 because we didn't have good data. Uh, climate change, we've got the data. We, <laughs> we just need to act on it. Yeah, I hope that's the case. I mean, uh, we're seeing a big shift in, in a lot of things, the way people look at the world. And I really hope that they they do start to value science more and and take the actions that all across the board that need to be taken both for the pandemic and after. So it's a very good point. 
Um, well, I want to talk a little bit about um, extreme weather since that's uh, one of your specialties. And I guess just kind of um, what's causing it and, and what are some examples? I mean, I know we see these wildfires are getting worse every year. We're getting more Cat 5 hurricanes and um, other, you know, like floods and droughts and everything's just seeming to happen more and more 10 year floods are happening or 100 year floods are happening every 10 years or less and it's it seems like every time we turn around we're just getting hit with another big thing so can you kind of explain how um some of that might be impacted by climate change and and what we can kind of maybe expect for the future if if you have an idea on that um yeah sure the um then uh, let me just paint a broad picture right now. There's there's two basic types of extreme weather. There's the stuff that um, is is extreme because um, it's it's out on the outer ranges of what normally happens, like extreme high temperatures, extreme low temperatures, extreme rainfall, so forth. And then there's things that are extreme weather just because they're weather phenomena, but, but that automatically are unusual or devastating, like hurricanes, tornadoes, that sort of thing. Um, so climate change um, is shifting the averages of everything. And so that automatically is going to mean that, that we'll see more extremes on one end of the scale and fewer extremes on the other. So we're, we, we, right now we, we're about uh, you know, twice as likely to set a high temperature record as we are to set a low temperature record um, because that shift has happened. Um, and you might think, well, okay, so that just means the proportions change. We still have the same number of records. But actually, as time goes on, um, the the high temperature records get more and more likely to happen. But you but you can't get low temperature records below uh, zero frequency. There's a there's a limit to how how few you can get. Uh, but the, if you could if, potentially, if you're warming rapidly, you could have a high temperature record every day. So so extremes. You become more common just from a shift in the averages. Um, for the other type of extremes, extreme phenomena like tornadoes and hurricanes, it really depends a lot on the particular phenomena as to what's going on with it and how it's affected by climate change. And some things we know are affected a lot. Some things uh, may be affected, but we can't tell. Some things we don't have any idea how to be affected. Uh, with something like flooding, extreme rainfall, is increasing and we know why it's because a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor and then when a storm comes that you have more rain falling at a given time so that part's easy uh, but then to get a flood you need to get the the ground saturated if you're talking about a big river system in a city yeah any rain that falls is going to run off because the city's got impervious surfaces and you so you get flooding increasing in urban areas. In rural areas, it matters also what's happening to the moisture in the soil. If rain falls on dry ground, it's going to soak in for a while. And so moisture is getting depleted because higher temperatures cause more evaporation. So as we start getting these more complicated things happening down the road, it becomes harder to pin down what climate change will actually do. And the statement that everything gets worse is, is actually a bit of an overstatement. Some things get better. A lot of things will get worse. Some things we still don't figure out, like tornadoes. They're so small that you don't get them in global climate models. 
And we don't have 50 years of climate-type observations. We know about tornadoes because they hit something or because someone went out to look for them. And the things they're hitting are built better than they used to be. And people are going out to look for them much more frequently than they used to. So you can't tell what trends are in that. Interesting. So I guess we'll kind of shift to talk about, you know, what are some, in your opinion, what are some things that we can do both at a, a more macro level and maybe as individuals to kind of fight or, or maybe turn the tide of climate change and, and hopefully help keep that, that average temperature lower um, or from, from getting higher, in your opinion? Right. Um, let's see. It's not sitting around here. And so it's hard for me to recommend the book, but I don't remember the author or the name of the book. But it was a really good book. Um, <laughs> I'll see if I can look up when you're asking a question. Um, but it was written by a guy who is um, actually an economist in Vancouver, British Columbia, who uh, did a lot of work on, on the VC uh, cap and trade market and the whole bit. Um, but he made the point that you know people can do what they want to, um, and it, it's really not going to change things until we get policies in place that pr- produce the economic incentives to do things. Um, so, um, the, the, the bottom line, most important thing people can do is, um, get leaders that see the climate change problems the same way they see them. And to the extent they don't change public opinion or opinions of politicians to move things more in line. And that means voting means protests it means um talking to your neighbors um means doing podcasts it means uh you know changing the changing the attitudes of people so that we have a different consensus yeah that's something that um has kind of been repeated i think in a lot of our shows and just things that we've we've uh read and and seen is that you can make incremental changes individually, but really it comes from the policy and the the uh, collective action that governments or, you know, groups of people try to make. So, yep, and people can collectivize their action. You know, a lot of people doing the same thing has a has an impact. Um, I'm 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 privileged to to have um, enough income that I can choose what sort of car I purchased, and I purchased an electric car, um, not because I thought at this point it was going to have a big impact on climate change, because most of our energy profile in Texas comes from coal and natural gas, but it more pe- expanding the market means that you start developing market efficiencies, the cost of production goes down, and then it becomes more economical for more people to buy electric cars, and so trying to accelerate that sort of change by by individual action. And that's not yeah. political, but it's still doing something with with the with a broader impact on mine rather than just rather than just what what it's going to do for my own carbon footprint. Yeah, that's a good point. We're not uh, we're doing we can still do things that make a difference um, because they also affect the economy and and therefore will have a ripple effect hopefully down the road. Yep, we, yeah. make, we make our choices as to what products we buy and what companies we we we. Uh, encouraged to make more profits and um the you know the there's 
there's a lot of companies now that are moving toward uh, a zero carbon footprint and that sort of thing. And I don't know to what extent it's individual investors or mutual funds that are driven by individual investors, but it's not um, something they would be doing if there wasn't, you know, an impact on their bottom line that was favorable because of it. And I think that's because of the shift in public attitudes that's going on. Yeah. Whatever it takes, man. Whatever gets them to do the right thing, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, Chris, did you have any other questions? or comments I'm just love listening to you talk I could listen to do you have a TED talk or something we can listen to after this well I'm just probably teaching virtually now so there you go yes and I like how you mentioned um we can vote with our dollars too so it's not just political action we can take but it's also voting with our dollars and those purchases that we um need to make like a car we also have to look at getting a second car um, or change out the one we've got because our children are now teenagers and if the car's too small. Um, so what does that look like? And we are looking at electric because of people who are now more interested in it's a cheaper technology now and there's more stations set up. My husband's got one at his work for an electric car. So voting with your dollars is, is huge and it's, in, it's, that's probably one if you don't feel comfortable voting or you don't know a lot about um like I don't I only voted for the first time like four years ago because I wasn't interested in in government but I was very big on voting with my dollars so I if you feel empowered anyways definitely you have that power to vote absolutely and I think um I'll add on to that that uh, not just the products you buy, but the, um, the organizations that are doing some of this work to advance these causes. You can support them with your dollars or with your time or or just by, you know, sharing their information, their content. Um, that makes a big difference, too, in trying to change people's minds and get them to uh, take some collective action. So however you can, you know, make a difference. Um Make phone calls to your elected officials, research things, share things. Um, it all adds up in the end, I think. So, um, I just thought of some. Sorry. Are you hopeful for a future? Do you <laughs> see hope? Is it a positive outlook? I'm a natural pessimist, so for me, it's hard not to see it as a bleak uh, future, especially for my kids. But do you see hope? Uh, yes, I do. Um, the um, you know, there the things that worry me the most are the things that I don't know about. You know, we're we're putting the climate in on a track that's that's outside of not just human experience, but experience of the planet for the past several million years. We're doing it at a time when we've also fragmented ecosystems, and so it's going to be hard for the natural world to catch up on its own. But um, we we have the capacity to um, help the natural world. Um, our our abilities to accomplish things have been have been growing rapidly, growing tremendously over the past century. So we'll have um, we'll have the technological ability um, and financial ability to do things that we wouldn't be able to do today. Um, so even though um, 
even though climate change will have human costs and natural costs, uh, we'll, we'll still be very resourceful and still be able to um, deal with uh, um, the consequences that I can foresee. It's the consequences I can't foresee that I worry about because I can't be as confident about those. But um, there's nothing that, that, that to me says we're screwed. Okay. Uh, we're stuck with climate change. Mm-hmm. And a lot of individuals are going to be screwed by climate change because suddenly their house, which which used to be outside of the 100-year floodplain, is now in the 100-year floodplain. And that means their home value is now below the equity they have in it. Plus, they have to pay twice as much for insurance. That's where climate change is impacting individuals. It, it happens with these boom, 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 here, there, there, individually, rather than uh, all of society being affected simultaneously like it is with COVID-19. Um, and that makes it harder to see, but it's going to be a real cost. But um, if we help people through those costs, we really haven't figured out how society is going to help people who are impacted by climate change. If we can do that, we'll be a lot better off. Okay. So uh, to piggyback on that, this is a question that Jen, our other um cast member who isn't here today sent in 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 what you've seen um within your colleagues your circle of colleagues do you think climate scientists have transitioned more from warnings to prevention and prevention um to preparedness do you do you think that there's more of an alarmist um well we're beyond the point of repair and we need to just fix what we're going into or do you think there's still some measure of hope that yeah we're gonna you know we can prevent this we can get through it and we can do better well you know there is um anything we do to reduce climate change will reduce the cost um so like i said earlier it's not a matter of needing to hit a certain goal or else really bad things happen anything we do to to reduce the the ultimate magnitude of climate change helps um, just like COVID-19, anything we do to reduce the peak number of deaths helps. Um, we can set a target, but, you know, that target doesn't mean much. It, it, everything, every every single death avoided is a death avoided and, and less strain on the healthcare system. And climate change is like that in the sense that most of the impacts we see happening get gradually worse as climate change gets worse. So there's no point at which... We should despair because there's always the opportunity to improve things. Um, in terms of how we do it, um, I'm a climate scientist, so I don't really know. I, you know, I can I can talk about what's been going on. I can talk about why it's happening. I can talk about um, talk about um, what uh, what possibilities exist as to as to climate change impacts. But in terms of the appropriate solutions for it. Uh, that's outside of my discipline. I can only talk about it as a very interested observer of that aspect of the problem. But I don't know of people working on solutions who have gotten discouraged either. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, do you have any additional resources uh, that you would suggest for our listeners, books, podcasts, uh, documentaries, Any anything you would – you know, share with them to learn more about all this? Well, uh, people hear about the IPCC all the time. Um, but I don't think a lot of people actually try to pick up the 
3,000 pages of report that, that consists of dense scientific ease. But we have things that are called summary for policymakers, which are the most important messages written in language that even a politician can understand. And <laughs> probably below the average level of the, of the li typical listener to this podcast. So I actually encourage people to, to go ahead and look at, uh, you know, you can download it for free, Summary for Policymakers. There's actually, there's actually three reports that the IPCC comes out with every seven or eight years. Uh, one is what's going on with the climate system. Um, that's the one I focus on. Then there's one on what are the consequences of that to society, to the natural environment, and so forth. That's, that's uh, working group two. And then working group three is what can be done about it. Um, and it's a tremendous resource. It's, something, it's very rare that you've got hundreds to thousands of scientists worldwide working on producing the best possible document to serve society. And I don't think people take advantage of that resource near enough to be amazed at, 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 at how, how, how deeply people are thinking about the problem and how many opportunities there are for solutions. Yeah, that's that's a great suggestion. Um, and just for those at home, IPCC, that stands for International Panel uh, Climate very close. Intergovernmental Something like that. On climate change. On climate change. That's right. C.ch. C.ch. stands for Switzerland for reasons I don't understand. <laughs> okay. IPCC summaries for policymakers. Uh, I, I admit I have not delved into the report myself, but I have read articles on it and summaries, and um, I know that a lot of folks reference that a lot. So that is a great uh, resource that I'll have to to get better at at reading. Um, all right. Well. Um, I guess at this point we'll kind of transition into our green life hack. And um, I don't know if that would have been your green life hack, but this is essentially where we talk about something that we can do or that we're doing or we recently discovered to just kind of help us live uh, more sustainably. Um, so, Chris, do you have a green life hack today? I have sort of something. It's not like an actual product or anything like that, but um, if you don't know and I know there's some people who don't if you don't know how to cook or bake it's a perfect time to learn how to learning to feed yourself and just making even like for me my stress relief is baker and so is my daughter so we've been eating a lot of cookies lately but if it came down to it we can cook for ourselves and we can bake for ourselves and we can make bread we don't have to go out and and get it um we can save that product for somebody who doesn't have time doesn't have the resources to bake for themselves they can go to the store and pick it up um so yeah just if you can if you're interested just learn how to maybe kick, cook yourself a simple dish or um learn how to make bread it's really easy it's not that it's really not that hard it's like five ingredients and the oven does most of the work <laughs> Well, that kind of goes along with mine, which was um, I, for the second year in a row now, have a garden and um, <laughs> I've been, I've had a lot more time to devote to it. Um, I was telling Chris earlier, I have spent, you know, pretty much every day at some point in the day I've been in the garden looking at things and it's weird because I just like will stare at stuff and like try to remember what it looked like yesterday and see if it's grown a little centimeter or two, but um, gardening for me has been a big stress reliever. It's also been a cause of a lot of stress, but if you garden, you understand that. Um, cause there's always something to fix or plant or 
figure out the solution to why it's getting eaten up. Um, but it's very rewarding. Um, and I feel more self-sufficient knowing that in a few weeks or months, I'll have stuff that I can just go out and grab and eat. So, um, that's my green life hack is, you know, consider starting a garden or even just a plant or two. Um, this is my little victory garden while I'm holed up in, um, self quarantine and, and trying to, you know, stay away from folks. Um, but if you don't have the space, there's a lot of great container options. There's a lot of cool hydroponic options now. And you can buy these like self-made kits where it comes with everything you need from, you know, the the container to the seeds to the dirt and any other fancy thing you, you want to add. Um, but, yeah, just a good old-fashioned garden or plant. That, that's my green life hack this month. So um, did you have a green life hack for us, Dr. Yeah, Sophia? I do. And, um it comes back to electric cars, which 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 are, you know, in concept, it's not really a hack. It's an alternative vehicle. But the hack is I'm a I'm a really lazy person, and um, I re- discovered real quick that you don't have to change the oil on an electric vehicle. You don't have to go to the gas station and fill it up every every few days. Um, I just plug it in the garage at night, so suddenly I'm not tied to gas stations and that was that was great for me being lazy and now it's great because I don't have to commune with gas pumps and and interact with things other people have touched I went the full green hack mode yesterday and um, up until today the only reason I needed to take the car to a gas station was to was to fill the tires up with with, with air um, but I actually broke out my bicycle pump yesterday and did it manually. So um, and got a workout at the same time. It, was it works. <laughs> That's awesome. That's impressive. What do you drive? Uh, it's a Nissan Leaf. Okay. Awesome. I, um, I hope that my next car can be an EV. I, I paid mine off last year and I'm trying to avoid a car payment for as long as I can. So, um, stuck with this one for a little while longer, but uh, if anyone's interested too in a, a longer discussion on electric vehicles, we had a uh, episode five. We had the evangel EV evangelist evangelist mm-hmm. um, Buzz Smith on, who's a self-proclaimed you know electric car guru. It was a really cool discussion. He he's up in a uh, grapevine, I believe, still, and he sells electric cars and would love to tell you all about them so oh that was a great episode my husband was on it and he's because he's a oh, car yeah. nut and so there's a lot of he was very it he's really piqued out. his interest yeah he was nerding <laughs> out it was awesome yeah well that's a really cool one and definitely not one anyone's ever had before because none of us drive evs yet but i'm uh i'm i'm interested and and i just have to figure out you know i i hear that the charging situation can be tricky, especially if you're going long distances. So that's where I get a little freaked yeah. out. But we're, we're lucky enough to have two cars. So one is better. around town and the other one yeah. is long distances. And and if we get to the point of, you know, it's also uh, when I was going to grad school uh, in, in, in the Boston area, a fellow graduate student didn't own a car. Uh, he drove a lot, but he would simply rent a car whenever he wanted to go somewhere. And that turned out mm-hmm. to be more economical than the expense of owning one. Yeah. Buzz does mention that in the podcast, too, about how the uh, it may seem like a lot for an EV up front. But when you take and consider the amount of gas that you have to spend, it actually works itself mm-hmm. out where you could if you needed to go on that long haul trip, you could just rent a car to do it. Yeah. 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 And it's a brand new car every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's a good point. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Chris, where can we find you online? You can find me here and also at Epically Geeky and Marginally Geeky and Creatively Geeky, the new one, and then on Instagram at The Borough Life. Awesome. And where can we find you online or your work? Uh, any Anything you would like to share? Dr. Well, we, my students who run the social media outreach, uh, are on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Climate Texas, C-L-I-M-A-T-E-X-A-S. Um, and that's also the, the first part of our website. So presumably Googling Climate Texas uh, will get you uh, everything you need. Awesome. And you can find me here on uh, Sustainably Geeky and all the other geekies that Chris mentioned. <laughs> um, we like a good theme on, in this channel, yes, epically, epically, creatively, and marginally geeky. Um, and on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Het's Gonna Be Me. And you can find the show Sustainably Geeky on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, we're also on YouTube and anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. So if you haven't already, please subscribe and give us the thumbs up or the five star rating or whatever the qualification is for the channel that you listen on. Um, share us with your friends and let us know what you want to hear about. Um, send us a message on social media to kind of, you know, give us some ideas if we haven't already talked about it. Um, thank you all for listening and thank you so much for being on Dr. Nielsen Gammon. We really appreciate your, your expertise and you taking the time, especially during this, you know, crazy, crazy time of, um, social isolation of being on the show and, and just kind of helping us understand some stuff better. So well, thanks really? for reducing some of my social isolation. <laughs> <laughs> Our pleasure. <laughs> all right. It was great talking to you guys and for everyone at home, have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.